If you need help building your online presence with podcasts, live streams or recorded video, see how I could help at educationonfire.com forward slash media. That's educationonfire.com forward slash media. I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews on the podcast platforms they're listening to. It's a great way for me to hear and understand what you're thinking about the show and also to support people who are new to the whole Education on Fire experience. Now today I'm delighted to be chatting to Michael Strong and he's the most experienced developer of innovative education programs in the US and the founder of the Socratic Experience, an online school based on Socratic dialogue and emphasises personalised and purpose-driven education for students in grades 3 to 12. His remarkable career in education spans over three decades and includes creating many high-performance school programs that promote critical thinking, creativity and entrepreneurship in students across the country. Michael has been involved in some notable projects across the public school system and also created the Winston Academy. Thousands of his students have been admitted to top universities including Harvard, Stanford and Georgetown and many other post-secondary institutions. Together with his work as an author, he has spoken at Harvard, Columbia, Dartmouth, Cornell and the University of Chicago and dozens of other universities. His work has been featured in academic journals and speciality publications. So I really hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Michael Strong. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. Always great to chat from people from across the pond, so to speak, and also people that have you know, creativity and that kind of purpose-driven idea of education at the heart of what they're doing. It's something which is really, really, really something I'm passionate about. So it's great to be able to have that conversation. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. I can't wait to dive in. So why don't we dive in i mean you've got so many sort of strands to your bow in terms of what you've done in the in the education world over the years why don't you sort of give us that, that sort of snapshot of uh, of what people need to know sure i mean the the simple version is i love thinking and talking about ideas um you know i i am very socratic i when i was young i had a high school class where instead of the teacher lecturing we read and discussed philosophy uh, Plato, Buber, Nietzsche, and I just loved it. I went on to attend a college where instead of lectures for four years, it was all Socratic conversations about classic texts. And then as an educator, I've created public school programs and eventually private and charter schools, all where we think and talk about ideas. The role of the guide is Socratic, just to ask questions. And I find that students love it when they have an opportunity to be heard, to think, to argue. Uh, so in some ways, it's very classic and simple. And I've just managed to find different ways to manifest it in the contemporary education environment. Yeah, very classic and simple, but also 
seems also sort of forward thinking as well in this day and age where so many things are prescriptive and it has to look a certain way and there's an answer to a question rather than like you say just opening that world up as to well where can we go with this and what are we thinking about it well absolutely and, and to kind of dig in that more deeply i mean you know, socrates is about know thyself i think of our secondary curriculum where we spend two to four hours on Socratic dialogue every day, which is way more. A lot of schools do a little bit, but we spend a lot of time. And I say two to four hours because there are some other activities. There's some problem solving and students do projects and things like that. But we spend at least two hours a day in Socratic dialogue every day. And over time, the way I think of it is it's the conscious development of personal identity. And I see young people, especially in this day and age, with so many conflicting messages in the world, you know, Everybody is, everybody is disagreeing with everyone. The epistemology of everything is contested. Um, their own identities are being manipulated by the internet in a million different ways. And so for them to spend hours thinking and talking about the true, the good, the beautiful, tr trust, betrayal, what is manipulation, uh, what, what are we doing in the world and why? Uh, I find they find it terrifically valuable. And over time, they become a lot more confident and independently minded. Um, they are ready, I think, for the 21st century. So thank you. Spot on. I think this is actually what kids need in light of the rapid changes uh, hitting us every day. And you sort of mentioned there you've been able to do this in different settings and in different versions of schools, so to speak. How have you managed to do that so successfully Bearing in mind in, in sort of the experience I have often, there's a, a preconception that everything has to look this way because the system is so kind of rigid and, and strict in what they're doing. You've obviously managed to sort of find that formula to a great success. Well, that's a, actually a really good question. And that's one of the reasons why I've tended to spend more time in the private sector than in the public, because in public education 30 years ago, there was a lot more freedom to do this kind of thing, at least in the United States. In the United States, there's been, I would say, a steady narrowing of what's possible. It used to be a teacher could take Friday afternoon off and talk about ideas with kids. No big deal. Now there's this pressure, this test score pressure and so forth. In some ways, it's been a professionalization of education, but it's also been a narrowing. There's been an accountability movement that says we have to be teaching to the standards and teaching to the tests all the time. So I've, I've frankly pulled out from the public and gone into these private schools where I can create my own world and we attract the parents that are aligned with us. Um, there are some parents that think this is crazy. They want their kids to be learning the traditional standards and accountability and so forth. There are other parents, often entrepreneurs and creative professionals, who realize, in fact, this is what their children need for the 21st century. And so I, I would say, um, you know, the last 20 years, I've been mostly in Austin and San Francisco, you know, tech hubs. And I would say people who have to create new things, going back to your creation thing, people who have to create new things in the world know that their kids need to think for themselves uh, in order to create in the 21st century. Yeah, it's so true. And, and it's a question that's come up a few times um, in, in recent conversations I've had on the podcast in as much as we know it's exactly what businesses are looking for. It's exactly what we know the world needs in terms of moving forward. Um, however, like you say, the, the traditional public system or pro, uh, really just kind of isn't looking in, in that particular direction because it's it's sort of so sort of steadfast, and like you say, in that sort of high testing stakes and accountability. Um, and it seems a no-brainer. Like I say, you can see why people are drawn to what you're doing 
for those people that are thinking in that way in that particular field. Absolutely. And and the other thing is kids love it. I, I, I'll just shift something which may seem uh, adjacent, but there's a huge mental health catastrophe in adolescence. Social media, in, we're getting a lot of attention for the role of social media in increasing anxiety, depression, and sadly, teen suicide. And all of that's true. I'm certain that social media is part of it. But I think when the students have less uh, engagement in real human-to-human -human interaction, there's actually an even greater need for human-to-human -human interaction in the classroom. When students are um, influenced by all of these, this bullying and uh, invidious comparisons online, all the more need to have kind of a human-to-human, -human, uh, warm, positive, interpersonal culture. And so I think one of the paradoxes that people haven't realized is that um, the change that is leading to a reduction in mental health of teens makes a different kind of more social, human-to-human -human educational pathway you know, more urgent. So in addition to the kind of creative entrepreneurial theme, independent thinking, intellectual theme, there's also a hello, human beings talking to human beings is one of the most fundamental and important things we have. And sadly, it's uh, becoming an endangered species uh, in many parts of our lives these days. And how do you kind of marry that up with the idea of an online school and hybrid learning and, and all of those things that are, are so sort of a part of what we're doing now? No, it's a good question. And for decades, I was always doing this in person. Uh, I prefer in person. Uh, the reason that I went online is during COVID, uh, you know, everybody went online and most people were saying the online educational experience was horrible. And I think usually it was. It turns out dialogue works pretty well online. So you and I across the pond could have a decent conversation. It would be more fun to be sitting over a cup of tea, but uh, we can talk online. And so it's actually one of the modalities that works exceptionally well virtually. And I think for me, that's true. I mean, it's the essence of being able to do a podcast. You know, I speak to people from around the world through, through, through technology. But the conversations and the connections are, are as real, like you say, as they they would be in person. I think to the to the the, the a largest extent, and and I agree with you. Sat having a coffee or a, or a cup of tea, um, one on one, you get a little bit more of the of the kind of the the nonverbals and all of those things, which of course is what I guess great friendship is based on, and and how you can interact a bit more. But I think the 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 positives certainly far outweigh. The negatives in as much as we wouldn't be having this conversation and, and that would be something which the, the world misses out on. Absolutely and I, I think the other thing is um, we do try to get together in person so we've had a trip to Greece last year and again this year so two trips to Greece then we're planning a trip a camping trip in California and then a trip to Central America and then in the United States we have families from around the world but in the United States we have congregations of families in New York, San Francisco, LA, South Florida, Austin, San Antonio and kids get together there as well and I often find that if one even meets once in person then the virtual experience is much richer and so I'm a kind of a fan of uh, yes let's try to have some real FaceTime and then have this rich virtual experience because we we are familiar in that way. Yeah, and I think another thing that um, has come up with me quite a few times is the fact that 
the the richness that you get by having real relationships with people from different areas and different backgrounds you know you may well go to the school that's down the road but within that there's there might be different types of people but there's a certain similarity as well and you get much more diversity from people being in different states or different countries even and and then being part of a whole because that just has to be that those conversations are going to be different based on their kind of personal experiences oh emphatically so and we have families from iraq uh you know mexico guatemala canada Taiwan, Pakistan, uh, Senegal, you know, we are a very international community. And, and actually just going, you know, within the U.S., uh, as you probably know, things are very polarized, you know, left versus right. But when you're talking to, you know, a Muslim family in Iraq and a Christian family in Guatemala, and you know, everybody's coming with very different um, situations and challenges, it really does open yourself up. I, I do think that people tend to get stuck in, in their own ruts. And, uh, you know, especially young people, it's useful for them to be exposed to just very different ways of thinking and living. Uh, and they, they enjoy it, too. I think they, you know, the other thing is if you have a face-to-face relationship, often what people say is people are so vicious on social media because it's often anonymous. But if you're face-to-face, even virtually, uh, you're less likely to be a jerk. And then there's also the thing about iterated conversation where... You know, maybe last week they got into a heated argument where they were a little bit mean, but this week it turns out they both care about the same thing. You know, over time, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for familiarity. And often our kids get to know each other much better, even virtually, than do kids in a regular school, because they are talking about their personal beliefs on a very wide range of issues. And it's funny, sometimes I'll have kids who maybe are very uh, opposed on, say, a, a cultural or political issue, but maybe with respect to their view of you know, science or math or love even, they're very aligned. Yeah. So it's nice to have a multidimensional space where people can b- discover both common commonalities and differences. Yeah, I love that. And personalized is, is one thing to do, but the idea of being purpose-driven I find fascinating and so and, and so inspiring in so many ways. You know, I'm a musician. I had that sort of drive. I had that sense of it being something that I wanted to explore. It was an integral part of who I was. And luckily, I was able to sort of find that path by the opportunities I, w- I was given at school. How, how do you sort of um, embrace that? How do you allow that to sort of um, foster in a positive way and, and point people in the right direction to sort of fulfill that? A really, really great question. So I'm going to give you several pieces of that. One you know, there's the famous purpose diagram, Ikigai diagram, the intersection of four circles. What do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need? And what will the world pay for? So I actually teach a class on that every day where Mondays, every every Monday we have a conversation, what do you love? And there are lots of different aspects of that. What do you love to do in your life? What kind of experiences do you love? What kind of things do you love? What kind of entertainment? How do you? How does what you love change over time? How do you know with, if what you love is what you love versus others? You know, I can come up with a, a, literally a thousand different variants and what do you love? And then, yeah, Tuesday, what are you good at? A thousand variants. You know, Wednesday we do more kind of health and personal skills, and, you know, practical things. Then Thursday is what will the world pay for? So many ways to discover. And then what does the world need on Fridays? And talking about different dimensions of these problems kind of opens students up uh, to different ways. You know, even what does the world need? Um, some kids are very concerned about climate change, others about racism, others about inflation, others about, you know, poverty in their country. 
This is where being exposed, you know, in Iraq, the concerns of a kid in Iraq are very different than the kids' concerns of a kid in a suburban U.S. So we, we explore different ways in which people are concerned about the world. Um, and then beyond that, we have students um, think about their life before, you know, both post high school and beyond. And so a couple of things there. There's a website called Wait But Why. Wait But Why that has your life in weeks, and it has a, it's just a diagram of, uh, you know, 52 weeks a year, you know, 90 years. You look at it visually, and it turns out, wow, we don't have that many weeks to live. So if you waste a week, you know, that, that week is gone. That, that's one less on this path. We also have students write an autobiography from the age of 100 every year. And the point of that is to get them thinking about their whole life. And when they're young, they're often very silly. You know, I'm going to be a rock star, Nobel laureate, uh, brain scientist, okay. Uh, but as they get older, doing this over and over again, they become more serious about who they are and what they're going to do with their life. Sometimes I've had students write about the death of their parents, which is, uh, you know, very, very sad and tragic, but they're, they're thinking through life. So a lot of what we do is we want our students to be more thoughtful and intentional about their, their schooling today, their you know, post-high school time horizon, their entire life. And being in a culture where that's happening changes them, because there are students with different levels of maturity and sophistication about these issues. Finally, we also have students do personal projects where we expect them to do typically a creative or entrepreneurial project, completely their own choosing. They have a mentor who works with them once uh, every two weeks for 30 minutes. And the idea is to be doing adult-level professional work by the time they're 18, whether it's software development or video production or animation, audio engineering. We tend to get a lot of digital skills because we're online and we're part of the tech ecosystem. Uh, we have a student who wrote a... Uh, 200,000 word novel, and she has uh, 30,000 followers and a fan fiction website. We have a student who created a Minecraft mod company, and he raised 1.2 million in investment. So we've got these kids that are doing real world things and um, showcasing them to their peers while everybody's thinking about their entire life. And so it, it goes well beyond uh, school as classes into a culture of um, who am I, what do I what do I stand for and what am I doing now to make progress towards the kind of a life I want to live? Uh, and, and not everybody's at that level. You know, I would say we have, in terms of projects, the top third of our students are absolutely amazing. And we've got a third, the bottom third coming in, like, I have no idea. What do you mean project? You know, <laughs> but the way I think of education, it's about, it's about a culture and creating a distinctive culture. And so as long as we have these, you know, rock star purpose-driven creators and entrepreneurs at the high end, that really helps to transform everybody and what everybody is doing. And for me, I think the big word there is culture, because I know certainly you ask a lot of children, you know, why'd you go to school? The sad answer often is because I have to. And, and at that point, you can already feel what that culture is going to be like because, like I say, the input, the the interaction, the thought of what you're able to get out of it is completely different from everything that you're that you're talking about, and 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 it's that's a really sort of sad state of affairs, and also something which is quite hard to change, I would imagine. Well, exactly. Thank you on the culture front. I actually conceptualize education as primarily the creation of distinctive subcultures. And one of the reasons I did this is when I was in public school, 
I was able to, by means of daily Socratic questioning, to transform a class from passive and disinterested to active and engaged. But if I was doing that in third period, and then in fourth period they had a teacher who said, shut up and listen, then you could only get so far in terms of changing a culture. So eventually I started creating my own schools because I wanted a consistent culture of questioning and initiative and curiosity and warm, respectful engagement. Um, you know, and I, I vet faculty, when I hire faculty, I want intellectually curious faculty who are warm and care about students. And I don't care about traditional credentials at all. You know, the, the nature of the human beings is everything. And so we deliberately create a culture in terms of the faculty, in terms of families coming in, in terms of students' commitment, in terms of what we, we have a rubric about the kinds of behaviors we want students to exhibit. And it's all in dedication of a warm intellectual culture. I love that. And it, it kind of, really helps me and supports me in my sort of way of teaching when I'm when I'm teaching sort of percussion and drums in a couple of schools that I do here because that's so much of what I believe in and the conversations that we have and the way that we go about learning is it's integral to all of that but also in a sad way but for a supportive way for me is the fact that it's often only for half an hour a week and one of the things that I do have to remind myself and, and also the, the people that I'm teaching is the fact that if you want this to go beyond what you're doing you have to kind of take that step as well because I'm only going to see you for half an hour a week so how you take that into your practice and the fact that you are going to do practice the fact that if you hear a different type of way of doing things in a different classroom in a different way you have to kind of keep on top of, of what you feel is important to you in order to help doing it and it's quite hard to get that across in half an hour but over over the course of time I think they start to internally feel the difference of, of what that can positively do to you and, and and like I say our sort of mini culture within just that small room with the drum kit sometimes actually can sort of foster that sort of understanding of what the process is of learning who they are what they want to do and how they want to develop and that's an exciting thing even though it can be tricky at times. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the things I really wish more people would understand, going back to the creation of distinctive subcultures, is how all of this is cumulative. I think a lot of people, just on the Socratic seminar, some people go into a regular school, they try a Socratic seminar, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's kind of a blah experience. And, uh, you know, on average, again, there's sometimes extraordinary opportunities, but it really depends on, um, you know, the particular kids. I, when I did this in public schools, I'd spend seven periods doing the same Socratic seminar. I'm the same person, the same text or whatever. And third period would be fabulous, and maybe fourth period would be dull. And, you know, it was not me because I was the same person. But what I realized over time is by doing this consistently, and as I've created schools, uh, having everybody do it consistently, even those classes that initially were not interested could gradually be transformed. The comparison I make sometimes is it's like, building a fire with wet firewood. And first you kind of have to dry the firewood out and then work in a tiny place, get a few sparks and then blow the sparks and gradually nurture it until you've got a blazing fly fire. And yeah, some groups of kids, you walk in, you have blazing fire on day one. Other groups of kids, and I'm, I want to be compassionate. Sometimes they're depressed, they're anxious. You know, they've been told not to talk. There are lots of, we don't know what's going on in these children's lives. Uh, but I would say by consistently nurturing certain kinds of norms and certain kind of culture, I, I, I can go into any classroom. When I was in public schools, I was doing this. And over a year, I can get them very intellectually engaged. But with some classrooms, it might take me a year, whereas others, 
yeah, day one, they're ready to go. And I think that can really fill you with confidence, can't you? Because when you understand it in those terms, you can you can really gain and have that positive feeling, like say, of that smallest part of that journey. You know, like you say, it might just be that this piece of wood was so wet I could hardly hold it, it was slipping out of my hand. And today, at least I can keep hold of it and get ready for the next little bit of let's little twig that's going to go on there. And so, once once you can see that sort of overarching kind of idea of how it works, and I guess that comes with experience, and that's why I love these conversations because you get to hear all of these things from people that have really had the opportunity to do it. But I I think I think that is, is such a confidence builder for people. Absolutely. And, and part of it for me was shifting from I have to have a great show today in class to my goal is to transform the class by the end of the year. And that even let me give you concrete situations. Sometimes students have been so trained to be passive. If I go in and ask a question, they won't say anything. And it's, I, I gradually got into more and more wait time. Sometimes the students, I'll let an embarrassing silence go, you know, if they're wet wood, so to speak, for a minute, two minutes. I, w I want the whole class to be embarrassed. What? Are we doing anything? Is he going to ask another question? And I'm joking about it because they're so used to kind of being passive and entertained that uh, sometimes I really have to push them to get them to the point where, uh, you know, they'll take initiative and engage. But once once they realize, yes, uh, he really is going to wait until we engage, uh, then you get a two, couple of students. I always work with the most, uh, you know, whoever is ready to engage. And I think of it as, again, the wet firewood. Let's get these two or three students going. And once I'm having an authentic, exciting, engaged conversation with these two or three students, then let's pull in that one and let's pull in that one. So especially with difficult classes, I don't expect everybody to be engaged on day one. Let's start wherever we can, get those sparks going. As the other students see um, their peers excited and engaged, it becomes infectious, to use a different metaphor. Yeah, and that sort of is the epitome, really, of meeting people where they are, isn't it? Like you say, and when you can unpick um, that to, to get the people that are going to really take that first step and, and show other people the way, that, that I am... I can I can really sort of see that path being taken and I think it also then becomes supportive because again like you're saying you're creating that culture you're showing people what's possible and then the positivity of wanting to be involved far out outweighs any worry about getting it wrong or or making yourself look silly or not engaging because you feel there's going to be a negative connotation to that. Absolutely and you know I'm just thinking of even things like the music program uh, you know I could imagine you know, if you had the opportunity to identify educators who are completely aligned with you, you could design musical activities that kind of corresponded to lively conversations and lively experiments. Uh, you know, and I, I, I do think that there are ranges interesting. So we all get stuck, and I like lots of different genres of music. And students often come in with pop culture only, for instance. Uh, and so I, I love to ex expand the range of what students have been exposed to because ultimately they develop a taste for that too. I think there's one way of thinking about students that, oh, we have to give them what they like, and we do have to connect with what they like. Absolutely, we have to connect with where they are. And at the same time, I think we want to expand where they are. And so I, I think of it as this sort of dance where, um, I'll give you an example. Often the way I get kids going in conversations, maybe on very difficult abstract philosophical texts is, it connects with some humanistic universal, love, truth, betrayal. I can go into any classroom and say, ask, do you care if your best friend betrays you? 
oh, of course, they would hate, you know, the thought of a best friend betraying them is outrageous. And so we can get a lively conversation. Um, and then we can get into, okay, why and what counts as betrayal and under what circumstances, you know, and kind of shift it from their spontaneous outrage uh, to something where they're thinking and processing and getting into the nuance and detail. And so I think a lot of the art of doing this is, yes, connect them with where they are, and then at the same time intentionally stretch them to be thinking and engaging with material that they would never touched, have touched on their own. Yeah, I love that, and I, th I think it's such an important distinction, and uh, and it's certainly something I've um, I've sort of walked into a little bit more in, in terms of that of that kind of like say what what are they listening to from a musical point of view? Did you realise it's also like this? It was influenced by this. Let's just sort of take a little step into that direction, and like I say, you don't know what you don't know. So if they've not been exposed to something, it may well be that the thing that they don't know about is the thing that they're going to be passionate about and thrive in because in, until they're exposed to it, they, they don't know that's um, something which they're going to want to put their energies into. Absolutely. And I think part of it is just to shift a little bit, I, I, I think it's really important to respect students and listen to them. One of those things that students often say about my school is that they feel more respected and listened to. And so I think sometimes those of us who want to, you know, expand students' horizon, horizons, there can be personally, I'll, I'll be mean, the way I think of it is if I go to a, a cocktail party in the evening and somebody walks up to me and starts teaching me without my permission, it's really rude. You know, what? You're just telling me yada, yada, yada? And whereas if it's, hey, uh, you have these interests, tell me more about it, it's a different sort of thing. And so I think in the art of getting students to care about the things we want them to care about is we listen to them, listen to what they care about, and then make connections to things we care about and or we want them to care about and have this bridging thing. So it really is an authentic dialogue. And that doesn't mean, you know, it mean, makes it harder to uh, dictate daily curricula because it could be that on Tuesday, I really want to talk to them about the French Revolution, but we got into a conversation and you know, they care about inequality in the United States today, and I wanted to take the inequality conversation to get into the French Revolution, but maybe I'll have to wait till Thursday or the following week. You know, and, and so there's, there is this sort of give and take in the conversation where I have to respect what they're interested in now while also um, working towards getting them interested in new and different things. But uh, insofar as going back to the kind of top-down curriculum, insofar as the norm is... Uh, teachers have to teach this on, you know, Tuesday, September 15th. Uh, that makes it impossible to be responsive in the way that I want and need to be responsive to the students in the class. And it also reminds me of the fact that people, as soon as, like you say, there is a little bit of movement because there has to be, whether it's social or, or climate or economic or whatever it happens to be, you get nervous then because you can't fit your your round pegs in your round hole or your square pegs in your square hole. It has to be slightly different. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe AI and, and things which are obviously going to change the world and are going to have an impact on education. If you're already talking about understanding how we're moving through learning, how we're dealing with children, how we're having conversations, how we're using the tools, like having an online school, which wouldn't have happened, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, 
then it just becomes another opportunity to expand horizons, another opportunity to learn in a different way, but to do it in a way which is kind of, like you said, respectful, but also in a way which is going to be supportive because you're going to have those conversations on a real level, which is going to be in understanding, but also I think a positive slant rather than we're, we're, um, we're sort of disbanding the, the the structure of what education is actually what we're going to do is we're going to step into whatever's available to us to kind of support you to grow again into that sort of personalized or passion idea of where you want to head uh, absolutely and and actually that gets to a related theme which is i'm not anti-tech i'm very pro-tech and people talk about a flipped classroom which usually is uh you know we work on the problems during class and then there's a uh, you know a lecture outside of class but um, we use, say, adaptive math software, where there's self-paced adaptive math software. We're working with AI math tutors. But the way I think about all those sorts of things is that uh, tech should do what tech does best, and human beings should do what human beings do best. And I think, um, yeah, warm intellectual dialogue is, you know, I think of it personally as one of the most human things. And, um, you know, the math exercises, we can, we can outsource those to the tech. There are places where we work on explanations in math and understanding the concepts and problem-solving techniques together. But again, and it's more of a dialogical way. And so um, I see the incredible uh, progress in uh, ed tech of various sorts to actually facilitate my focus on dialogue because we can optimize for the kind of deep conceptual understanding that comes from dialogue while having the more mechanical aspects uh, more perfectly developed, taken care of by, by the ed tech. Um, so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, I love that. And and even just you know, hearing you speak about that, I find the whole concept of what education looks like incredibly exciting from that moment on, because you just know that, like you say, you're you're getting the best of everything. Um, and it, if it frees up your time to be able to, like I say, to have those conversations and that dialogue and, and be the best humans you can be together, that definitely means that people in that culture, in that environment are going to get the best, the best of both worlds, as it were. Um, well, absolutely. Just one more thought, and then I'll let you go on. But you get you get me going. You're great at getting me going. Uh, you know, I actually because it is so much fun. Just to emphasize, this is so much fun. We we got people begging us to teach. The kids love it. I love it. The faculty love it. It is fun. I see myself as an entrepreneur of happiness and well-being because we create little pockets of happiness and well-being, having warm, positive intellectual dialogues. What's not to like? So, apologies. Go ahead. No, no, absolutely. That's that's the perfect way to round to round up that 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 part of it. Really, really great. I just wanted to just touch on the on the author side of those things because it sounds to me like you know you you could you could have these conversations with the world. When I'm glad you you know I'm glad you're a guest. I'm glad you're able to share your message. Um, and I guess the people that are part of the schools that you've been involved in really get the best of that. But is is the the writing the books and the the sharing the message is that your way to kind of spread that um beyond your your sort of immediate um, personal network and, and the ways that you're able to share it? Sure. So a couple of things. I have a, I have a book. It's now 25 years old. It's a habit of thought from Socratic seminars to Socratic practice. And you can come to our website and get the SocraticExperience.com and get a free PDF. I also have a YouTube channel, Socratic Michael Strong, where uh, the daughter of a friend began working with me when she was four years old, and she's now 10. And so I've got six years of 
YouTube videos, and it's really extraordinary because when she's four, we get into conversations, what is a puzzle? I ask her, is, is eating lunch a puzzle? No, 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 that's not a puzzle. <laughs> uh, you know, how do you know if something's a puzzle or not? Is reading a puzzle? Well, reading's sort of a puzzle. I get her thinking intellectually at the age of four. Now at the age of 10, she is taking Harvard CS50, Harvard Introduction to Computer Science. Extraordinary intellectual development. But I, I did this so that parents can see how um, I have these intellectual conversations, even with young children. I have two grown children. When I was growing up, we'd be driving in the car running errands, and I'd be having intellectual conversations with them. I think once parents realize uh, how to explore their children's ideas, I call it loving your child's mind and asking their children questions, not with a right or right, wrong answer, but really trying to understand their world and how they see the world with infinite curiosity on our part um, to explore their understanding. Once they grok this, then any parent can do this with anyone. Uh, again, in, in some ways it's so simple and natural, but we've been taught that education is about teaching. And so in some ways it's getting the teaching brain, the teaching ego out of one's head and getting the curious, intellectually curious friend uh, going even with your children so that they, you expand their minds by means of joyful conversation. So my YouTube channel, Socratic Michael Strong, and then my book, The Habit of Thought, are two tools. I also have a bunch of articles on Medium, uh, including how to give your child an expensive private education for $3,000 a year. And that is basically uh, Socratic dialogue plus tutors for the math. Um, a few other bells and whistles there. But I would encourage interested people to follow me and follow my YouTube channel. I read my book and uh, I'll follow me on Medium and Substack. And I keep putting material out there that hopefully is useful for people who want to engage uh, children or adults like this. Yeah, it definitely sounds it. And um, I'm always curious, um, is there a school experience that you had or a teacher that you remember which had an impact? And and how indeed did that kind of frame how you've then sort of taken that in, into your educational journey with all the, the things that you've been speaking about? No, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned the high school teacher was all dialogue, but then I had good test scores, so I went to Harvard for a year. But I left Harvard, where it's still famous people lecturing at you, to, to attend St. John's College campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, where for four years, all we think, talk, and argue about ideas, classic texts. But what I liked best, I had a, one professor said the ideal St. John's foreign language exam was one where uh, test on Friday, but you don't know what language it's going to be in. Maybe it's Swahili, maybe Mandarin, maybe Polish. The idea is you should be able to walk into a room with a lexicon and a grammar and translate anything. And I love, my vision for education is autodidact. So we, we need to train young people to have the attitude they can figure it out. Uh, maybe it's instead of languages, science, technical science. You know, maybe I haven't studied biochemistry, but I've got a biochemistry paper and with Google, I can look up the terms I need and figure out. You know, my vision is for everybody to learn any, to feel empowered to learn anything they want, um, whenever and however they want it, given access to the internet. And so this vision of, you know, in some ways dialogue sounds different, but, you know, you and I are understanding, we're understanding each other and our worlds. And so I think people underestimate the extent to which with infinite resources available through the internet, um, there's 
you know, motivation as an individual to learn, and then there's dialogue with other people to learn. And these very simple tools can allow for free, high-quality education for anyone once we've put them all together in the right way. Yeah, I love that. So, so, so impactful, really so impactful. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And indeed, or, or flip side of that, what advice would you maybe give your younger self now, looking back as a, uh, a more mature Michael? Yeah, that's 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 a um, that's a tricky one. I I think I think it really is taking the long view. Um, you know, I, I I think that with up ups and downs are painful. We'll all uh, you know we'll all run into difficult situations. We'll all have difficult days. Uh, and I think being a purpose driven, going back to our earlier conversation, being a purpose driven individual who's looking at uh, our entire life helps us weather the storms of this or that, you know, tragedy or catastrophe or all the, all the ups and downs. You know, I describe being an entrepreneur as being punched in the gut every day, which is not fun, but I'm building something I care about. And so I think this, in, again, in some ways, these are old messages, but live a purpose-driven life where you're focused on the long haul, and that will help get you through all of the vagaries of misfortune that happen day after day, no matter what. Yeah, I can hear so many people going, thank you for that, <laughs> because like you say, it's, it is that sort of that understanding of, of that long term vision and, um, and being able to know that what you're doing is making an impact on you and also the people you're serving as well, despite, like say, those maybe the daily challenges or things that crop up. Um, and, and you've mentioned all the, the places where people can find you, but is there a resource you'd like to share either professional but it could be personal as well in terms of a podcast a book a video song film but something that's had a, a, an impact on your life yeah i i would say in addition to my work there's another book called teaching with your mouth shut uh and i think that's a wonderful metaphor because again i i think we all uh have have this notion that teaching has to be didactic uh and so i think if people think about, uh, there are many ways, and this in, even gets into the the influence of culture. There are many different ways to provide an education for somebody, and if people expand what that is, then then they have more more ways to have a positive impact. Donald Finkel is the author of that, Teaching with Your Mouth Shut, and I see it as a complement to my book, The Habit of Thought from Socratic seminars to Socratic practice. Fantastic. And, and I'll make sure there's links to all of these things on the show notes so people can uh, can um, just click straight through. And and just finally, as we wrap up, the, the acronym FIRE is important here at Education on FIRE. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What is it that strikes you when you hear that? Uh, the inspiration. Actually, it's a great thing. Feedback is interesting because feedback done well is really important and feedback done poorly is uh you know can be negative and i think it's often done neg negatively and so i actually the juxtaposition of inspiration i think one has to find a way to provide feedback in a way that's inspirational i think that's that's sort of the the short immediate thing that i get is uh feedback can be perceived as critical and uninspiring Let's take the inspirational piece and make sure that we provide feedback in a way that's inspirational. 
Fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing all of that inspiration with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, and I'm certainly inspired um, one to go and, and find out more about all those things that you've, you've spoken about. But I think also the sense of that wonderment of anything is possible if you start to think about education, if you start to have these conversations in the way that you've described and and you start to see that long view of, of what is um, what is the most important part of the journey. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. Thank you, Mark. It's been a delight speaking with you. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.